as a writer, one of the most valuable things I think is workshopping, reading, sharing your writing with actors. Welcome to Best in Fest, and I'm Leslie Lepage, the director of the La Femme International Film Festival, and this is a podcast for everyone who wants to learn more about making content for television and film and learning the dirty little secrets that make Hollywood tick. Oh my goodness. We are interviewing today on the show Julia Morizawa, and she is an animator, but not just an animator. She actually started off uh, in acting and uh, in... Scandal and Seal Team and Judas Kiss. She then segued into being a writer and um, new media producer and writer and and uh, also hosting and um, writing for podcasts. So some of her projects um, include um, Sin and Lyle, which was a short um, Jessu Cat. Um, uh, accidentally joined a cult, or how I actually accidentally joined a cult. American comedy horror story uh, orphanage, which was a fiction podcast, and I'd like to welcome you to the podcast, Best and Fest. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> uh, thank you for being here. So you got bit by the acting bug first. Were you were you were you one of the little girls you know that would put the uh, would start performing and they would say stop and you would just keep you know singing and dancing and doing what you had to do? So no, so no, actually no. Um, so I actually grew up as a competitive gymnast. So from like age like three to probably thirteen, uh, gymnastics was my life outside of school. Um, and then around that thirteen year old age, when you decide you want to have a life and friends and go to birthday parties or whatever. I, I quit competitive gymnastics. It was too much, whatever. I don't exactly remember, but I did quit right around the high school age. And um, it was uh, kind of one of those moments where eventually it was maybe a little bit of pressure from the parents as well. It was like, well, what are you going to do now? Like, you're, you're not a competitive gymnast. You're not going to get a college scholarship as a competitive gymnast. What are you going to do now? And, and I had a friend who had been doing theater since middle school. And I, I just remember seeing her, her at school one day and being like, what's theater like? What's, what's the drama club like? And she was like, oh, it's so fun. And um, I joined the drama club in high school and started taking classes there and started doing community theater. And, and that's where the bug hit me. So teenage years. Teenage years is where you got bit. You know, some some parents and parents that uh, are in certain ethnical ethnic groups, ethnical groups. Um, uh, <laughs> a good, I like that word. Yeah, it's just a made up word. It's a made up word for anyone listening. They're going, what did she just say? Um, um, you know, are hugely disappointed when the child athlete is no longer a child athlete because they start panicking, going, oh, my God, what is this person going to do? They're going to end up on the street starving and begging for money. So uh, how did they take that transition when you said theater? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I'm not sure because, uh, and I probably shouldn't say this publicly, but why not? Um, 
what another thing that happens in in families of of certain cultural and ethnic backgrounds is uh, we don't talk about things. When things happen, we don't talk about them, and especially from an emotional perspective. So I don't know how they felt. I'm sh- I'm. 99% positive they were very disappointed that I quit gymnastics and maybe thought it was just a phase and I'd go back. Maybe. Not sure. Um, interestingly enough, the once I got into theater, even though it was theater and it was the arts, uh, because my dad, I believe, as far as I know, was generally kind of an artsy person. I mean, he, he played guitar. I know he played guitar a lot when when I was younger, right? And he sang a lot. Um so he had, and his dad was a musician. So, so there was something already there. But once I got into theater, it was kind of like, okay, well, it's theater now. You better go balls out. Like, you know, he would, he would come. I remember him coming to a, the a rehearsal for my first uh, play ever. And I'm a teenager. And the director told me to uh, speak up more volume, right? And then when I left the rehearsal, like in the car, my my dad made a note like you need to um, speak louder on stage, you know, just kind of critiquing. <laughs> right. So I think it was like once I transitioned, it was it it was kind of like, OK, well, now you better go all out. Then you better do a good job. Right. Yeah. Right. He's like, you better you better do a full out. You better do a full 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 out on us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so so then. You know, as an actor, you had some success. You know, you were on some TV. You had, you know, a feature film under your belt. Um, where did you really, I think, um, look at or start exploring being a hyphenate? Because you are a hyphenate now. It started early, but not really. And what I mean is, like, uh, from the beginning, because what was it? It was probably the mid two thousands, not to like age myself, but by that point, it was like right before YouTube started existing. By that point, people were already telling actors, you need to write and produce your own stuff. Like that was already the message that we were getting. And so that's what I started doing. And that was Sin and Lyle was my first short film, which was years ago now. And that was what that was. That was me writing a role for myself, directing it because I couldn't afford to hire a director. So, okay, let's just direct it myself, produce it myself. Okay. And literally like everybody worked for free on that one. That was like the one ticket you get to like not pay people. And then you don't get to do that again. Um, very first thing. And that was like 2005, 2006. Um, and so from there, you know, every few years it was kind of like, especially if there weren't enough auditions or acting jobs booked or I was just feeling down about myself or whatever. It was like, okay, what can I do next? What role do I want to write for myself next? So for a long time, it was sort of a means to an end. Like it was, I need to fulfill myself creatively and nobody else is giving me the chance. So I guess I'll do it myself and I'll work with my friends. Uh, And then it was also very much like, uh, what role, like what leading role can I give myself? Um, but then it was pandemic times where the industry shut down and there wasn't any work. But more importantly for me, um, I had my first kid and I moved out of Los Angeles. So two major life things happened where I was like, uh, I mean, I basically, I, I'm having kids. I'm out of L.A. My career is over. Like that sort of. 
that sort of thinking. And then once you kind of sit down and let yourself be depressed for a little while, you got to get out of it, right? It's like, okay, but is my career really over? Does it have to be? Like, what can I do? And, um, and because we're in a pandemic and everything was remote, it's like, I'm going to write, you know, I'm going to write. Um, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to read a lot of scripts. And I started working as a script reader. Um, I'm going to like take some classes. I'm going to take like some Sundance classes online and I'm just going to write. And I think I wrote, I wrote a pilot and a, a feature in like 2020, 2021. Um, and then once sort of the industry started opening up again and, you know, it's feels like it's back to normal. It, it really does feel like it now. Um, well, it will be up until like May 1 when we decide what's happening with the writers. <laughs> then it may not go. Yeah, then it may not be normal again. And then, again. you know, in, in another five years, we'll be normal again or whatever. Um, yeah, I, uh, I started getting the producing bug back, which is like, well, is anyone going to produce my stuff for me? Mm, maybe, you know, I can pitch it. I can kind of try and send it out to some people, but maybe like how realistic is it for me to produce stuff myself um so i got that bug back and the funny thing about dragonfly is it was half and half it started in 2019 before the pandemic and then the and then we finished at the earlier this year so that was a four-year process um more than half of which was in the pandemic well, before we start talking about that i just want to touch on something that is is interesting you said, first of all, you had to realize what kind of parts you would be cast in in order for you to write a part for yourself. Or did you say, these are the kind of parts I should be cast in, and I want to write something that will show what I can do, you know, in that particular part. And once you had those done, did you see that that influenced you know, the casting, uh, w were you then able to start kind of promoting yourself in those castings? Yeah. Okay. Great question. So many layers. Um, I feel like, yeah, I feel like for me, it was more the latter where it was like, uh, these are the roles that I want to do. And, um, I'm probably not going to get cast in them for for whatever reason, I don't know if that was true. Maybe it was true for the time, but I wasn't going out for those types of roles. And the types of roles for me, a lot of my stuff is like written coming, uh, inspired by things that I've actually experienced. They're not entirely like, this is a true story, but just inspired by uh, my own experiences. And um, those were things that I, I wasn't going out for at the time. And so like with Sin and Lyle, uh, that was, that was a very uh, kind of dark, it's been a while since I've watched it. Like, would I really consider it dark now? <laughs> I don't know. But at the time it was kind of like a dark drama. It dealt with, su it dealt with suicide, issues of suicide and mental, mental illness. Um, and then uh, with, um, with Jesus Cat or how I accidentally joined a cult, um, that was improv. And that was largely motivated, motivated by the fact that I had started training at Second City and had a, had started studying improv, which was something that 
for a long time, I think I was afraid of. It's like, I don't even remember that. But I, I think I was, I was, there was definitely a period in my career where I didn't think I could do comedy. There was, it's like so far back now that I kind of forgot, but there was. And so like doing improv and sketch comedy was a huge thing for me. And Jesus Cat was that role where it's like, oh, now I can kind of be that character actor or I can be bigger and broader and, and explore comedy. And that for that particular thing, um, I do feel like from that point forward, uh, I was being considered more for comedy. And I think it's a collection of things. It's not just like because I wrote that movie for, for myself and did it with my friends, but it was getting trained at Second City. And, um, and like even around that time, like changing representation and your new rep being like, you do comedy, you're funny. Okay, I'm going to send you out for... Um, sitcoms yeah <laughs> like yeah it's just it's a collection of things <laughs> so that's 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 interesting because um you know there's typecasting right in the industry and and they'll look at a handsome you know man or kid or and they'll look at a handsome gal uh or an ethnic gal and just not think that they can do comedy. So it's, it stands out, I think a little bit, it breaks their mold, um, when they're going through that casting. So it's interesting that you, you took the leap and, and showed it to them visually, right? Which in the long run ended up helping you. Um, but how was your, uh, you know, you started writing all these and you started performing in it. Did you, how did you approach the the writing aspect? You said you took some classes. Was it really based off of your acting training, you know, segueing into writing, or did you have to rethink the, you know, you, did you have to, like, break your mind in order to go, okay, wait a second, this is how you write it, this is how you perform it, and the writing and the performing are two different animals, right? I think it was a combination of both, because my first scripts, even Dragonfly, um, I actually rewrote it after we had already, like, done voiceover production and done a lot of the animation in order to apply for grants, because I went back and read it with what I know now, and I was like, hmm... If if the first person seeing this is like a script reader, um, they're gonna they're gonna see this formatting and be like, uh, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of heavy text, and it is animation, but there was a lot of like long paragraph. There was like a first page was like description, and I'm like, I think I can cut that back, and that was something I learned as a reader and taking classes and that stuff. I never thought about as an actor, which was, you know, other writers or, or teachers telling me, just don't do more than three to five lines of action in a paragraph, more white space. I was like, I never thought about formatting in that way. And then you get used to it. But early on, I feel like as an actor, what's great about actors and actor training is, you know, how to break down a scene, <laughs> you know, uh, how to analyze a scene, you know, characters and you know, dialogue. And there's a little bit of a transition with dialogue for me that I've learned over time is, and I kind of like blame being an actor and blame like starting in theater is I'll get notes that are like too much dialogue. You're, you're, you, they don't need to talk this long. Why don't you cut this monologue like in half? And I'm like, but they want to talk that much. And it's like, well, <laughs> but they're not an actor. 
and they're not performing on stage. So let's see if we can pare that down a little bit. Um, so uh, honestly, actors, uh, not maybe not all actors, but like most, at least if you're trained, actors are really like the best people when it comes to analyzing a scene and quickly, because that's what we have to do every time we get an audition and like character, character backstory. So as a writer, one of the most valuable things I think is workshopping, reading, sharing your writing with actors because you get a lot of good stuff that way. Right. Well, you touched on that. You did kind of a period of script reading. Uh, I, I suggest this to everyone that everyone should do a good year of just slave labor script reading for someone somewhere. I mean, I, I, I did it at one of the major studios and was slave labor and read 4,000 scripts in a year and a half, which was insane. I look back going, did I sleep? I must not have slept because how could I have read that many? But I, that's the count, right? What, for those listening in, what's your major takeaway from reading and analyzing these scripts that you can say, hey, this is, these are, these are the points that people always fall down on, or these are the points you have to watch out for. Can you share that with us? Ooh, I think one of the biggest things, without getting into like nitpicky things, one of the biggest things that I probably see is um, where the script doesn't quite, doesn't seem to quite represent the writer's premise or intentions. And usually you can tell either by reading their log line and then it not matching the script or uh what happens a lot is there will be you know the first depending on what it is like the first too many pages depending on what medium they're writing for of stuff that they don't need um before and then you get to the point where like oh this story is about you know i'll read features where it's like page 30 oh this story is about this cool uh but not everybody's gonna read to page 30 but I did, and I, that's cool. This is a cool idea, but you just didn't quite execute the beginning to get there that way. And sometimes that's just honestly, because when I write my own stuff, I, I send it out to a lot of, like I, I pay readers and I send it out to the handful of people that I know who I, I still pay, actually. I pay, I pay them. Every once in a while, like in a writer's group or on some of the online communities, people will volunteer because they're, they're wanting to um, get practice. But I send my stuff out to a lot of people and it's so interesting because I'll get notes back about my work that I've given many times to other writers. And I'm kind of like, what? Really? Like, there's not enough conflict or this this part is too slow or what? what? And you just, you get tunnel vision with your own stuff because you know everything. You know what you meant to write. So it's impossible to know really whether or not it came across. So that's, you just have to get someone else to read it. It's like the only solution. Yeah. It's funny. You touched on something about, you know, you know, the, the script starting on like page 30. What I've noticed a lot of young writers is they give me a lot of backstory and not actually, and the story doesn't start until page 30. So one of, you know, a lot of the comments are, okay, cut the first 30 pages. Cause that's where your story begins. That's scene one now build from there. 
Um, so it's, it's, you learned that from just the plethora of scripts that you read. Yes, this is why I say, everyone listening in, please do slave labor and read scripts. <laughs> just hundreds of them. You will walk away going, oh my gosh, she's right. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. It's wild how much I've learned. You think, you think, oh, I know story, but it's, you know, screenwriting is so specific and the execution of it has to be so efficient. It's not like a novel where you can just like go on a tangent for a little while and get back to it, you know? Well, let's talk about um, Dragonfly. Uh, um, first of all, how <laughs> it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't have a lot of comedy. Uh, it, it's, 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 you know, okay, so I was gonna say, yeah, but it's, it's executed really well and it's a really, uh, well-developed story in a story where I look at you and I go, well, why did you pick that? <laughs> so, so what, tell, tell those listening in a little snippet of, of what this wonderful animated short is all about, where you came up with the idea and, you know, give them that information. Yeah. And why? Yeah. Okay. So Dragonfly is an animated short film. It, it is about the uh, true historical event of the Tokyo firebombing of March 9th and 10th, 1945. Um, so that was World War II for us. That's not what it was called in, in Japan. But um, uh, that was toward the end of World War II for us. And um, uh, it had a higher... Um, sort of immediate yeah death immediate death toll than hiroshima nagasaki uh for that night um so yeah why this story so when i was in my 20s so many many years ago i got the bug to research my family heritage i don't i know a lot of people get that bug right i got that bug um i started interviewing my parents and um, I never met my grandparents. Uh, three of them passed away before I was born. One was in Japan, passed away when I was young. So I never met any of my grandparents. I don't know anything about them except the result of interviewing my parents and uh, writing about this family heritage, developing a story um, based on this family heritage. And one of the things that came up is I interviewed my mom who... <laughs> like the interviews are so short with her there's just like no information to mine um and she's very funny because she's like it's not my life wasn't interesting it's not interesting i'm like mom you were born and raised in japan it's interesting to me because it's different right but, but one thing i asked her was like what were your parents doing during world war ii do you know and the only thing she knew at the time was uh they were in Tokyo for a little bit, and then there was a fire, and they had to move back to the family farm in Komodo. And that's where my mom was born and raised and all her siblings. So like, okay. And at that time, not knowing anything, I had never heard of the Tokyo firebombing. So at that time, I was thinking fire like a building burned down. Right, because she plays it off like, yeah, it was, you know, just a little fire, and then we decided to leave, and we went to the farm because the farm, you know, I don't know, wasn't burnt down. You're right. Exactly. So, but, you know, Google is a great resource. And I started Googling just like 1940s, Tokyo fire. And um, that's enough. Those are enough keywords to uh, get information about the Tokyo firebombing. And I was like, oh, this is probably what she was talking about. I don't know for sure. 
because I never asked my parents. And as far as I know, if there's any record of that kind of stuff, it's not in this country. It's not in English. It's not something I can read or get my hands on. Um, so that's what I went off of. And um, I started reading more and more about it, found some books, a lot of there's a lot of articles online that are in English that are great. Um, but around that time, I, you know, I got the bug to research my family heritage. But as a storyteller, I'm like, what can I turn this into? So I started writing a feature screenplay um, about my maternal grandparents and then also my paternal grandparents who experienced World War II in uh, Heart Mountain uh, internment camp. So that's different. That is not something that is portrayed in Dragonfly. But um, I started writing this feature that was like super long. I turned it into a chunk of it into a pilot and it, like still just like working on it periodically here and there over the years, just trying to figure out how to make it work. But then uh, a friend of mine, um, Fern Lim, who's actually an associate producer on this project, uh, one day I told her about this story, just like my whole family heritage. And like she texted me and she was like, I just came back from a, a, a film festival and I saw a bunch of animated films. That story you told me about the firebombing, what if you made an animated short film? <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's like so easy, right? Like, just do it. I was like, Just huh. do it. <laughs> just go ahead. Snap, snap. Let's just do it. But she gave me the bug. And I was like, because the firebombing story, there's no way I could have afforded to do anything, but much less a short film of that in live action. Um so she kind of planted that seed and it, it just, it, it's, it sprouted and it grew and it stuck with me. And I was like, now I have to do it because it's like been planted. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting the way you navigate this um, through the storyline of this short animated film, because there is a lot of drama that happened. Uh, first question. So you never confronted your parents on if this was the fire that she just offhandedly said, oh yeah, there was a fire and we left and now we're in the farm. I'm trying to think, because my parents have read, I think they read the feature version years ago and they, I think they've read, I'm trying to think if they've watched the film yet. I gave them a link. I don't know. But they never like offered it up going, hey, that was right. No, and you know, it could be that she doesn't know. Because again, like what I said, so part one of the, she wasn't born yet, uh, 45. My mom was born in 46. Yeah. So what I said about like families not talking about things, and I think this is actually pretty common in terms of like war survivors anyway, in general, like no matter your cultural background, but I don't, she, she may have never known. Her parents may have never told her. And that's kind of like something I touch on without, you know, without being really um, on the nose about it in Dragonfly is the idea that there's like uh, two generations of women here who share this experience. They learn about this big experience, um, but it's not really clear if they know each other knows about it. It's kind of because there's a fantastical element that's added into the short that's not in the like the feature version. There's a fantastical element um, that kind of is left open ended. Like, does 
does mom know that daughter knows and have they talked about it before or not or and uh, yeah it's just kind of left vague fill in for the people that are listening the actual um fire uh event that occurred because it's not really a widely known thing right so just fill in um to those you know who who really want to have a little clearer understanding of that yeah so march 1945 um it was uh um the united states dropped it was like 1600 there was a lot going on in the 40s <laughs> right um right yeah it was something like 1600 1700 tons of incendiary bombs which are bombs that don't explode and i'm only explaining this because this is stuff i learned so if if listeners are like duh sorry but this is stuff that i learned through researching this i did not know this before bombs that don't explode they're basically it's fire they drop like little balls of fire onto Tokyo, which at the time was largely made of wood, and it was a very windy night. So they caught very quickly, essentially turned into like a firestorm that lasted several hours and um, like flattened. I think it was something like 17 square miles of the city, killed over 100,000 people that night. Um, and the thing is, that was not the only one that I... I read some sources like that Tokyo had been bombed hundreds of times and a lot of, uh, I'm trying to think which Miyazaki, no, it's not a Miyazaki, it's a Studio Ghibli film. It's Grave of the Fireflies, um, shows a couple of fire bombings in, not in Tokyo, but in smaller cities in Japan. It was done a lot in major cities everywhere. Right. Because mainly because of the wood aspect, it was something that they deemed to be. Effective. Yeah. It, and it, it was effective. Um, but the Tokyo firebombing was the biggest uh, casualties, deaths, casualties. Yeah. Um, and that was in March. So it's not, you know, as I think a lot of people don't know about it and I didn't. And um but a lot of people do know about the atomic bombings. So we know it wasn't until the atomic bombings that Japan surrendered and, and so on and so forth. But there was a lot of destruction leading, leading up to that point that affected civilians. Yeah. Right. It was one of the methods that they were using prior to the, you know, big atomic dropping that and saying, hey, this is now got to stop. Right. So, um, the choice of doing it in animation is is interesting because you know it it focuses those people that are looking at the animation into the audio aspect. Yes, you have the beautiful visuals, which are kind of reminiscent of you know Ponyo. Um, you know, you know has that that stylized um, feeling, um, but it also focuses on the 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 audio and and. Um, the drama that you were able to elicit in through the audio. How did you go about selecting the type of animation you were going to use for this? How did that come about? Well, as someone who got into this really not knowing anything about animation and knowing I needed to find an animation director who could guide me, what I did go in uh, assuming was 2D was going to be the answer because 
I wouldn't be able to afford high quality 3D animation. Um, and also uh, a friend of mine, Charlie Frail, who's credited as an animation consultant, um, actually uh, helped a lot before I started actually like hiring people, what I should look for and and what possibilities I could do. And one of the styles I had originally considered was essentially, I don't even know, this is how bad I am. I don't even know if, if there's a technical term for it, but essentially you see it a lot in like documentaries where it's like characters aren't even necessarily moving. It's like layers of still images kind of passing back and forth in front of each other. Sometimes you see it in anime, like in cartoons, where characters are running, but their bodies aren't really running. It's just like their arms are thrown behind them, and then there's like lines drawn next to them to show that they're moving, right? Um, so we talked about that sort of style in terms of just budget constraints. And that's what I talked to. So my animation director, Maria Martellinero, um, that's what I had pitched her when I hired her and when I told her my budget and you know and she she seemed game and she sent me some um you know some ideas some concept art and it looked great and then I I don't think she's ever really said this but I'm 99% sure over the course of the project maybe she was just like no I want to make this look better than that that idea, that quality that you pitched, it needs to look better than that. And I remember when I first got like the very first like 30 seconds of animation or a minute of animation that I finished animation that I got from her and then Eva Benitez, who is like the lead animator, I like cried because I was like, this looks way better than I expected. Um, and I think that's what they just discovered themselves was like because their names are on it. They don't want it to be this sort of like half-assed budget animation. They're like, no, we got to go all out. Um, and um, so they delivered a bit extra to, yeah, to what you had originally thought they were going to give you. Like a lot more extra. And then of course, once they deliver extra, you can't unsee that. So you it's can't like, unsee that. Right. Going. So you can't go back. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, this doesn't match the other stuff. Like, why are you giving me crap now? Yeah, so, you know, so it took longer than originally planned, and I went over budget a little bit, um, but it was worth it. It looked so much better than I expected, honestly, yeah. And you also chose to um, uh, do elements that had black and white uh, to help create the story as opposed to color. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that was like an early, early idea I don't know if it just struck me, uh, just essentially doing the flashbacks in black and white. One, because they're flashbacks. And two, I think, and I don't even know if this is true. I think at the time I was still very much thinking as a producer, like, would it save us time and money if you don't have to color everything? Uh, and it was partly... Can I pull it off you know, uh, aesthetically and, and artistically? Well, can I make it make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it made sense. And also I, um, early on, I was, lo I was looking at a lot of like animated films um, on YouTube and what was like kind of winning awards around that time. And there were a lot of samples that I found that were black and white or grayscale or very limited color that just looked so cool. 
you know, it didn't look like a budget issue. It looked like a conscious choice to make it look really cool. Um, so once that idea got in my head, it was like it made sense because it's set in two different time periods. You basically have 1956 and 1945. We put 45 in black and white, except for, in most cases, the fire which is in color. Good, a good choice. I mean, it, it really helped um, clarify the story in the visuals. So um, now you're going through the festival circuit. It's coming up uh, on a festival like at the in May. Um, how has the festival circuit worked for you? How, what do you? What's your experience on this particular product going through the festival circuit? Well, it's just started, so I can't quite answer. So we're premiering next weekend at the LA Asian Pacific Film Festival. And um, I have been contacted by one or two others where it's kind of like, we're still considering yours. Will you please answer some questions? Um, uh but nothing officially announced yet. I just started. So for our premiere at that festival, I submitted a, a work in progress back in December, a very rough work in progress with a long cover letter that was like, I promise it'll be done. Right. Yeah. Promise. I promise if you select me, it'll be done. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because I just kind of wanted, I, I got to the point where it's like, you guys, I think we just need to finish this. How much do I, and I, I hired, we hired two extra people at the end of the last year, uh, last year to help them out, two animators, so we could finish it. I just got to that point where it's like, I think we need to finish. I can't, like my heart, I think we need to see it done. Um, how much money, how much more money do I need to get, you know, <laughs> and how many more people do I need to hire? And um, so... That was the only festival I didn't want to submit another work in progress because it was like a work in progress at that time was like the last two scenes were still in storyboards. Uh, no sound design, no music. I was like, I can't submit this anywhere else. So it's just the beginning of this month where I finally actually started my full out submission process. Most of those festivals are going to be in the fall. So we're crossing fingers um, that uh, other people will like it. <laughs> You'll have a you'll you'll have a long and happy run. Um, uh, last question: What is, what advice can you give um, actor, writer, producer, hybrid uh, coming into the industry that maybe you have learned along your travels that you can share? I I, I hesitate to say this because uh, I think people, especially actors, um, hear it a lot and it gets maybe tedious, but. Um, make your own stuff. I know people, it's hard because it's hard. It's exhausting. It costs money. Um, you know, I, I usually produce a project like once every like three to five years because it takes that long to finish something. And then also I need like an emotional break in between. And I know as an actor, uh, actors, uh, and I think writers too, anyone, uh, you, produce your own stuff and after a while you're like somebody just hire me and pay me to work on your thing <laughs> I'm tired and I just need a paycheck um, but I do actually believe if I wasn't creating writing my own stuff and producing my own stuff I would um, not uh, I'd be sitting around waiting for phone calls the majority of the days of my week like, cause 
you know, getting hired for acting or any kind of freelance writing gig is so few and far between for someone like me and many other people out there. Um, so do your own stuff and you don't have to, you know, you can do cool stuff with very little money if you're willing. And I, I always hesitate to say that because I don't, I'm not like ask people to work for you for free. Like I'm not, I, I, I pay everyone. But sometimes I just work on a thing like um, the fiction podcast you mentioned in the beginning, America Comedy, American Comedy Horror Story. It was just me and my best friend being like, you want to do something? You want to do something kind of dumb, like comedy horror? And it was just the two of us. We didn't pay each other. And we just like went out to lunch once a week and with a laptop and wrote and, you know, recorded it in her sound booth. Um you know, no deadlines, no pressure because it was just us. So sometimes if you have that opportunity where you have one or two friends and you want to just do something for fun, it, something can come from that. Shout out your socials. Uh, tell them where they can uh, track your film and find out where it's going to go and see it at a film festival. Uh, so me, uh, I'm on, I'm pretty much only on Twitter and Instagram at Julia Morizawa. And then uh, Dragonfly has its own social media that I try and keep up with. Um, it's Twitter and Facebook is at Dragonfly Short. Instagram is at Dragonfly Short Film because they allowed more characters. And I did them first. <laughs> I signed up for them first. Those um, darn characters, uh, limiters. Yes. <laughs> and um, we're premiering or depending on when this when this airs, have premiered um, on on Sunday, May 7th in Los Angeles at the LA Asian Pacific Film Festival. And hopefully, you know, if you follow any of the social media, uh, you'll see hopefully future screenings late summer, fall for more opportunities. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, Julia Morizawa joining us on Best in Fest. For those that want to see the video component, don't forget to go into the La Femme International uh, channel on YouTube. And if you want to um, DM us, go ahead and do that and tell us how much you love us. Rate us, rank us, and pass us on on all the podcast networks. Thank you so much, Julia. We look forward to seeing more stuff from you. Best and fast, we're out.